Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 33, Washington through Jackson, U.S. Presidents Exposed, 1789 through 1837. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And this is like, this has been the most challenging podcast that we've ever created for so many reasons. The first take that we had was uh, going on about an hour long and we were just on George Washington. And <laughs> so we scrapped that. And uh, and since then, we've basically been having technology issue after technology issue. I feel like this is somewhat a cursed episode, but we're working through it. Gumby? Yeah, this was a, we figured this would be at least a two-part episode, maybe a three-part episode, and then like when we finally started doing it, we're going to try it now as a six-part episode. So <laughs> we got three episodes all together um, that's going to kind of help us wrap up this season along with one more episode. And then the last three episodes that will take us up to our current president, we're going to kind of uh, try them next season, um, spread out a little bit. So that's what we're going to have, three episodes in a row that's uh, the U.S. president's that takes us um, up to the late 1800s, I think. And we just want to let you know that because we've uh, edited this a little bit, you might have some bumpy transitions as you listen, but we had so much, uh, like so many cool facts and learned so much awesome information that we just wanted to share it all with you. Got anything else to say? Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about why we're doing this. Um, one thing is to learn more about history. Like Teresa and I are both really interested in history and, um, I, one of the things that really pisses me off, um, you know, especially lately with everybody talking about Trump, is they talk about Trump as if everything was just fine and we got a bad president. Now everybody's like, you know, after Trump. And uh, I am not doing any of this in defense of Trump, but to me, the problem has always been much deeper. It's the system. It's all the presidents. And so that's one of the things I want to explore is that we don't have like a bunch of good presidents. There's no like sacred office that any of the presidents have defiled. It's been corrupt since the beginning. Um, So that's one of the the things I want to explore with these presidents episodes. And uh, yeah, why are you doing this, Teresa? Uh, Pretty much the same thing. I think all the presidents have been bastards, and uh, if we keep on voting them in, they're just going to keep on showing their ass. So Yeah, and boy, have we learned a lot through research in these episodes. It's been so much homework. Teresa says it's like being in college. <laughs> like you go into the library in the morning, you stay there until the library closes, and we've had some days like that. It's way above our paid grade, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's worth it because I'm learning so much. Yeah, let's get right into this. Let's do this <laughs> shit. 
So basically all this talk about impeachment and Trump and, you know, everybody's focused on what a bad guy Trump is. And I'm definitely not saying he's not. But my premise is that they are all bad. We're attacking the wrong thing by attacking an individual. So that's the case I want to try to make today. Um, Let's start with Washington, the first president. So I've got five charges that I want to bring to bear against Washington. The first one is violating indigenous rights. Um, Washington was part of a group of people that were, we call settlers. We, uh, America has been called a nation of immigrants, especially lately, and it's said as if it's a prideful thing. We are a nation of immigrants. Now consider what that means, especially in Washington's time. Immigrants is a synonym for settlers, colonizers. Why were these people so desperate that they had to come to these foreign shores when they're hearing stories about savages that might jump out of the bushes and scalp you at the same time they're hearing stories about opportunity. What does it mean to seek a better life? We're talking money. We're talking opportunity. We're talking exploitation. And occasionally we're talking about fleeing from a bad set of circumstances. But why do we never see indigenous people like Bushmen um, of the Kalahari as immigrants? Why do we never see like the Apache before we, we screwed with them, like showing up on European shores as immigrants? Um, what's happening here that's not serving people, that they're so desperate they would take that kind of risk. So this is the environment we're talking about with Washington. Already, there's been so many violations of indigenous rights that, that lead up to Washington. Um, lies, smallpox, that wasn't the Europeans' fault. They didn't know, but it goes right back to their way of life. Consider why we brought so many diseases here instead of picking up diseases here. The only disease I've ever heard, and it's debatable, that Europeans picked up and brought back to Europe was syphilis. But what did we bring over? We got measles, we got smallpox, we got chickenpox, we got, I mean, the list goes on and on. And that's due to this unnatural way of life that we've been living for millennia, where we have our farm animals living trapped, animals that are supposed to be free. We we trap them in small pens and have them living close to us and the viruses that they have mutate and we pick them up. And that's what we brought over here. So let's get started with Washington. Why do I charge him with a violation of indigenous rights? I'll look through my notes, and we will start in 1763. This was leading up to the Revolutionary War. A royal proclamation from Great Britain restricted settlement to the east of the Appalachians. In other words, no settlers were allowed to go west of those Appalachian mountains. Washington said, I can never look upon that proclamation in any other light than as a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the Indians. It must fall, of course, in a few years, especially when those Indians are consenting to our occupying the lands. Any person, therefore, who neglects the present opportunity of hunting out good land, and in some measure marking and distinguishing them for their own, in order to keep others from settling it, will never regain it. So here we have Washington encouraging people to trespass on land the Indians had not agreed to give them in direct violation of the rule of the land, which was Great Britain at the time. This was before the Revolutionary War. This was the man that was about to become president and impose laws on these very people that he expected them to follow, encouraging them to break the laws against the indigenous rights that even England, who we're taught were the oppressors of the time, were trying to respect until they came up with another agreement with the Indians. Washington is trespassing. Fast forward in time a little bit, and we find ourselves in 1787. This was shortly before um, Washington became the president. The Northwest Ordinance was issued by the United States government opening up the Ohio Valley to settlement. Now that England was out of the way, 
Um, the American business was money, how to settle more territory. This increased the need for managing Indian affairs. Washington pushed for, pushed for treaties as a basis for Indian relationships, and a lot of people applauded him for his peaceful ways. Instead of just going in there with guns blazing, why don't we sit down and make a treaty? But the U.S. government has yet to honor a single treaty, and that was no different in Washington's day. Um, Congress approved treaties with the Shawnee, the Miami, the Ottawa, the Chippewa, the Iroquois, the Sauk, and the Fox. These did not protect tribal lands, and tribes found it necessary to deploy force, which, of course, the U.S. government condemned because they had to enforce their own um, restrictions, which the treaties supposedly were meant to protect. <laughs> in 1790... Um, as Washington is president, the Treaty of New York was restored some of the land given to Georgia that the Creeks, also known as the Muscogee, did not recognize from interpretations of three treaties from the 1780s. It also established a process of assimilation called civilization. So in other words, in addition to the treaties, a new strategy was employed to deal with the Native Americans, the Indians, which was to, to coerce them to become us assimilate them. They had to live like us. The treaty failed, of course, to stop settlers. Now, we've heard the complaints from our white forefathers with the Indians that a chief would sit down and sign a treaty, and then they'd be raids from that very tribe. So we, uh, you know, the, the, our ancestors were taught to think of the Indians as dishonest. Now, the Indian form of government is not a empirical empirical form of government. The chief was signing a treaty agreeing that he would not lead a raid against the whites and would not um, condone it in council. But he has no power over the people in his tribe. If another brave stood up and said, these whites are trespassing on my land, I'm going to lead a raid against them. Who wants to come with me? I'm going to steal some of their horses to get some something back from all that's been taken from us. The chief has no power over him. Now, here's what we don't think about as often. The Indians had the same complaint against the whites. The white chief would sit down, sign a treaty, and say, we will not trespass on these lands. And then very soon the settlers came pouring in. So they wondered why the white chiefs, who supposedly had a government <laughs> where the chiefs had that kind of control over their people, equally failed to have get the people to honor the treaty. In 1790 through 1791, Washington dispatched armies against the Indians resisting settlers, which were defeated. And of course, they had to resist the settlers because the treaties were not being enforced by the whites themselves. Congress was deeply embarrassed about this and authorized a 5,000-man army led by a general, Mad Anthony Wayne. And what kind of bastard do you think gets a name like <laughs> Mad Anthony? He won the battle, and thus the Treaty of Greenville brought tentative peace in 1795. Tentative, because, of course, the treaty was not honored. Ooh. In 1792 through 1794, coming to the end of Washington's first term, Washington, who, by the way, was the first and last president to run as an independent with John Adams as his vice president, Washington reluctantly approved General Mad Anthony Wayne to annex land with his rangers. He enthusiastically, this being Mad Anthony Wayne, embraced destroying food and killing civilians as tactics. The sale of the confiscated land to settlers was the primary revenue source for the new government. So the national debt, debt was large and one of the primary ways that the U.S. government sought to make money in the beginning of this fledgling government, the United States of America, was to go in, steal land from the Indians, 
and sell it to settlers. In 1796, Washington, during his second term as president, says, I believe scarcely anything short of a Chinese wall or a line of troops will restrain land jobbers and the encroachment of settlers upon the Indian Territory. You see, he takes no responsibility for his own. He's got an army that he's willing to employ to take land, but not to protect the indigenous people's land. Um... My next charge against Washington, and I have five, is class hierarchy. Now, that's something that's kind of normalized in our culture, but I, I would say that anytime we talk about class hierarchy, we're talking about a guy that is trying to accumulate, or a woman, that's trying to accumulate more than they need at the expense of someone else, leaving someone else out in the cold. Um, the contrast I find instructive is an indigenous culture. Most of the time, what you find is the chief is no richer, sometimes the poorest man in the tribe, because they consider him a leader because he makes sure that he gives. He gives. He's generous. That's one of the highest values in indigenous society is generosity. So what kind of person accumulates that much? And then we think he's a good leader because he has so much more than he needs and doesn't share it. This is Washington. I consider that a crime. And it's an upside-down truth, too. Uh, elaborate. Well, I mean, it's just looking at how the chief in the tribe is giving and giving and giving. And then this chief of ours, the president, he's taking and taking and taking, and we think he's the best thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Washington family was already a wealthy family. His family had been here for a few generations of Scotch-Irish uh, descent immigrants of course. Um, they were, of their time, the 1%. They were some of the wealthiest people, and Washington definitely became the, the 1%. Washington was actually said to be the richest man in America, um, but that came later in his life. So you could say that not much has changed. Washington, in a way, was the Donald Trump of his time, the very first president. We elected the richest man in America to lead us. Um <laughs> This is the role model we wanted to follow. Somebody that got filthy, rotten, stinking rich. He was a social climber. He learned how to dress. He learned how to talk. He learned who to talk to. He learned the mannerisms that would impress the right people to gain higher and higher status within this hierarchical, um, wealthy society. He was money and land hungry. We see by his meticulous balancing of, a, of the books, which he learned from his mother, whom he hated, um, how to take... Uh, keep careful record of every expenditure and every finance that came in. And so we know a lot about how Washington banked because that was the, his primary concern was keeping up with his money and increasing it. Um, he was more banker than soldier. He got to start as a land surveyor because he understood that land was connected with wealth. He leased Mount Vernon from his half-brother Lawrence, who he, whom he adored and idolized, in 1754, and he gained enough money to own it in 1761. He was known for having a bad temper, especially with anything regarding money. When you read through his letters, the angriest letters, the most venomous letters, have to do with his finances. You read calm letters about war, about this or that, but when it's his finances, he gets really riled up. Um, motivated by money and military service, he served under British General Edward Braddock. Now, what became known as Braddock's defeat against the French along the Monongahela River, this was prior to the uh, Revolutionary War, Washington was the only unwounded staff, which we find suspicious. Hmm. Anyway, this was considered one of his heroic deeds that he saved other wounded soldiers. He wrote that his chief regrets from this battle 
were suffering loss and private fortunes because he had to be away from Mount Vernon and his health in that order. Uh. This man cared about nothing more, even his own health than money. In 1759, he greatly expanded his wealth by marrying the widow Martha, uh, I always forget her name. Custis. Custis. Her husband had died, leaving her with a fortune, and the vultures were circling. It was considered, you know, pretty normal in that day to try to find a wealthy woman to marry to increase your fortune. And Washington had landed a whale. Um, He came in there with all this social climbing that he'd learned with his uniform and charmed her. And once he was convinced that their marriage was to be established, he immediately started buying stuff to add to Mount Vernon, expanded it, bought all kinds of fancy stuff that were even beyond his means. And he was wealthy at that time because he heard the cash registers in his head. Cha-ching! Martha was coming and she was bringing her fortune. 1762, a precursor to the Revolutionary War, Great Britain begins imposing tighter restrictions and higher taxes on the colonies. They don't offer any protection when the Indians attack Virginia's frontier to the west, and they're accused of cheating American merchants. The Brits also allowed the colonies to sink further in debt as a way to control them and give them no way out, so they could say, well, you owe us. Um, This was a tactic that was immediately employed by the United States against its enemies, primarily the Indians, and later even Germany, leading to World War II. Um, But at the time, it was condemned as a horrible thing to do because it was used against us. Washington's fortune begins to decline. Not much, mind you, not like our fortunes are. You know, he's not out there, like, living by the sweat of his brow. Um, But his fortunes ever so much decline, and this is intolerable to Washington. Nothing pisses him off than his money getting screwed with. Um, He takes no responsibility for his lavish spending and his love of consumerism, which soon became a widespread American trait. It's almost the American identity, consumerism. We buy stuff. Washington loved scented napkins from France. He loved lacy little doilies from England. (laughs) So at the same time, Everybody starts saying, buy American. They're recognizing their addiction to imported goods is keeping them subservient to Britain. How are they going to get independence if they need Britain's stuff? Um, Washington, he did scale back. But for him, he, he still was just consuming. He loved buying stuff. Whew. Let's see. Where does that bring us? That brings us to the Whiskey Rebellion. Now we have President George Washington. Um, Washington gets in office and is alarmed to see that after this long revolutionary war, the the country is deeply in debt and nobody's paying any taxes because that was a big reason why these settlers were fighting. They're poor people. They're struggling. They're looking for opportunities. They're also greedy people and they don't want to pay taxes to the Brits. So what did the, the new American government do? They imposed taxes on whiskey and there was an uproar. The settlers said, screw you, come collect it. So this uproar is happening, and Washington is imposing taxes, trying to get the poor to pay money, while he still remains the richest man in America. The Constitution was written, we the people, but you know everybody in that room was a rich uh, landowner with slaves and plantations. Those are the people referenced in the Constitution. The president himself is the richest man in America, and now they're asking the poor people to pay money to help finance America. The poor people, to their horror, were realizing after this revolutionary war, it wasn't a revolution at all. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. A new group of rich bastards after their money to make their life harder, and they weren't putting up with it. Washington had to to call the military in to put them down, and this set a precedent. 
that the U.S. government was now willing to use violence on the poor to force compliance with its laws. I say, what laws serve the people if you need to enforce them by military power against the people themselves? Hmm. (laughs) And now my third charge against General Washington. I know I'm moving fast. We've got a lot of presents to cover here. Human trafficking. Boo. You might say this was normal for the time, but there were plenty of people who didn't own slaves. There were even abolitionists who were completely against slavery at the time. We were only taught that it's so normal because we're taught not to condemn these great white uh, framers, the founders. (laughs) So let's start with this charge, looking through my notes. Ah, In 1781, during the Revolutionary War. Now, this time, Mount Vernon... um, had hundreds of slaves. Between Washington and then Martha Custis, both of them brought slaves together into this relationship, and the the, the plantation was worked by many, many slaves. The British warship Savage appeared on the Potomac River while Washington was off fighting with his troops um, at different parts of the country, and it torched estates on the Maryland side. They They threatened Mount Vernon next if provisions were not provided. Now, at this time, Mount Vernon was under the watch of Washington's cousin, Lund Washington, who was terrified. He brought some cooked chicken, and while he was on board, the Brits spoke highly of Washington. They said how much they admired his military skill, and they were just very much uh, respectful of Washington, and they charmed Lund, who laterly returned, laterly, returned with a large supply of livestock and other provisions. <laughs> Only when this ship left, the British ship Savage, did they realize that 17 of the slaves had escaped on board this ship. Now, this fact might not prompt much of a response, but look underneath the fact. They're in an American house, owned by George Washington, who is the, the chief general fighting against the Brits. You can imagine, the, these were illiterate slaves. The only news they heard was from the people of the household. How much good do you think they were hearing about the British soldiers? I imagine they were hearing nothing but bad stuff about these British soldiers they were fighting. How bad do things have to be on this familiar plantation for not one, not two, not three radical, crazy slaves, 17, to choose to get on board the ship with people they've heard nothing but bad things about and go into the complete unknown rather than stay on Mount Vernon? I say that speaks a lot to how Washington was treating his slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, in during at the beginning of Washington's second term, President Washington in 1793 signed the Fugitive Slave Act. Ooh. This um, was a statement of property. It meant that whether you're a free state or not, if a, if a slave escapes, that slave is private property. And if he escapes to a place to be free, then if you harbor this slave, you have stolen private property. It is still the property of the slave owner to come get it. You cannot harbor a free slave because they are not a free slave. They are a piece of property that need to be returned. This was signed by General George or President George Washington himself. Um, after the end of his presidency, um, actually, we don't know when this happened or even if this happened, but he is alleged to have fathered children with a slave named Venus. Now, slave raping was something that was pretty common back then. This actually is not something that's substantiated. Um, it's just an alleged charge. Now, more likely, something that has more evidence is that George Washington's um, stepson, 
Martha's son from a previous marriage, John Park Jackie Custis, was known to be a avid slave raper. He was known to rape many slaves. And this happened at Mount Vernon under George Washington's watch. Um, so I say he's responsible for this, at least in part. In 1799, by the time of Washington's death, he owned 124 slaves. And he freed them all in his will, which we're taught is a very, it shows how much that he abhorred slavery. He freed them all in his will. And indeed, during his life, he spoke against slavery very often. But what's instructive to me is this man didn't free a single slave while he could benefit from them. As long as he could profit from the slaves, he kept them. Only on his deathbed, when he could no longer make money from their free labor, did he free them. What we're not taught so often is that he controlled another 193 slaves, and most of them remained enslaved. Well, Moving on against President Washington, my fourth charge against him is war crimes. I will consult my notes. Okay, at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, when I say the beginning, I mean the very first year of it, 1775, the Mohawk and the Seneca sided with the British because they were more afraid of Americans. Um, They figured if they had to side with one person or another, if somebody was going to win this war, they were better off with the Britons who were putting restrictive boundaries on the Americans. Even though they weren't working, it seemed to be that there was a little bit of effort to move slower on Great Britain's part, rather than be stuck with the Americans who had already showed them willing to break any law. They were so land hungry. Um, Also, Great Britain was across the ocean. The Americans are right here in their face, in their backyard, and had already proven themselves to be untrustworthy and horrid neighbors, to say the least. So we have the Mohawk and Seneca siding with the British. We have the Cayuga, Tuscarora, and Onondaga who stayed neutral. They figured white people's problems. Let them figure it out. Maybe they'll kill each other. We only have the Christianized Oneidas who supported the settlers. So Washington wrote to Major General John Sullivan to strike first against the Haudenosaunee. This was the confederation that included all the tribes I just mentioned. And he wrote, I quote, to lay waste all the settlement around that the country may not be merely overrun, but destroyed. You will not by any means listen to any overture of peace before the total ruin of their settlements is effected. Our future security will be in their inability to injure us, and in the terror with which the severity of the chastisement they receive will inspire them. Sullivan replied, The Indians shall see that there is malice enough in our hearts to destroy everything that contributes to their support. The Iroquois, which also known as the Haudenosaunee, called Washington Konotakorius. In their language, that means town destroyer. Mm. I submit to you that this is a war crime. If someone in modern days had done this to another people and it got put on trial, many of us would condemn this. This is a war criminal. We're taught that he is a hero. In 1779, four years later, the Revolutionary War is still in full swing. General George Washington, um, well, let me back up. In Bermuda, there were slaves that were starving because of a trade embargo with the United States. Representatives of these starving slaves petitioned Congress for permission to buy provisions from American merchants. General Washington opposed, writing that a famine would, I quote, throw many additional mouths, end quote, on the overburdened British supply system. What he's saying basically is let these bastards starve, because if we're more cold-hearted than Great Britain, Great Britain will have to, they won't let people starve, and this will divide their provisions and make them weaker and give us a better chance of winning the war. Wow. 
even Congress thought this was too cold-hearted to support, and they ignored him, and they ended up uh, agreeing to provisions for these starving slaves in Bermuda. But again, this is a war crime. Um, in 1779, the same year, Continental Congress, to fund the war that Washington was asking, um, he was having trouble keeping soldiers with him, sent three armies to scorch the earth across New York and to converge at Tioga, which was a central Seneca town. It's what's now called now northern Pennsylvania. Their orders were to wipe out Senecas, burn and loot all villages, destroy the food supply, and turn inhabitants into homeless refugees. New York and Pennsylvania colonies offered bounties on Seneca scalps, regardless of sex or age, as incentives for rangers to enlist and to support General George Washington to join his troops. Wow. 1781, two years later. Um... Let's keep in mind who these people in Washington's troops were. They were poor people. Only rich people like Washington got to be generals. All the other people are struggling people, people on farms. They usually couldn't afford to own slaves. They were taught under the propaganda of the rich people to fight for their freedom. So there began to be mutinies. Washington's troops mutinied against him in Pennsylvania. They were hearing letters from back home. Their farms were struggling. Their children were sick. Their wives were starving. They needed help. They needed their menfolk to tend the crops. This war was going on and on. And for what purpose? The rich people were just still being rich, and the poor people were getting poorer and poorer. So some of these people were saying, screw this. I need to go home. This is pointless. Washington put down that, that revolt. But a few weeks later, troops mutinied in New Jersey. This time, Washington rounded up the mutineers, these people that cared about their families, their families struggling back home, sometimes in dire need of the men to come back. And he ordered them to find the ringleaders, the people that were complaining the most, the people, when we say complain the most, we're talking about the people most worried about their families. He got the mutineers to round them up and to execute them, force them. He said, if you don't shoot this guy that was complaining about his family starving, we're going to shoot you. This is how Washington came took control and kept control over the poor people that composed his troops. In addition, of course, as we already mentioned, to scalping Senecas, women, children, anybody. Because one of the things that this greedy culture had fostered in these men is what's in it for me. So a soldier needed some private incentive to, to fight with Washington. And if they had to, uh, an opportunity to scalp Senecas to get money, that was enough incentive for a lot of people. Ah. <sighs> So it's really hard to separate Washington from the culture he's embedded in. Um, and now for my last charge against President Washington. Why this man is impeachable. Why he is not fit to lead us. Or ever was. And this is a kind of a weird one. Unless you're like me and you hate technology and really uh, embrace how much technology has done harm. Is I charge him as a crime for the U.S. Industrial Revolution. Um, when I say I charge him as a crime for the U.S. Industrial Revolution, let's go to 1786. This is right before Washington's presidency, but after the Revolutionary War. Now, Washington's making nice with Britain again. He even is corresponding back and forth with the innovative agriculturalist known as Arthur Young. Um, it said they shared a vision, which was articulated by Young in 1768, of looking forward to how, and this is a quote directly from Young, those regions, which are now boundless forests, wastes, and wilds, will one day be peopled with flourishing cities and adorned with beautiful cultivation and possessing in all their brilliancy the arts, the sciences, and all the consequences of luxury and empire. 
Well, fuck you, Arthur Young, because we are feeling all the consequences of luxury and empire right now. And George Washington empowered this by his love of technology. Washington was a known lover of innovation and machines. Any machine or any way to do something faster, easier, more economically viably, Washington was interested and he had supported it. He encouraged some for military purposes, like when John McPherson had a plan for explosive torpedoes that would, quote, destroy every ministerial armed vessel in North America, end quote, and David Bushnell's various infernal machines, including the submarine, the Turtle. So in other words, Washington was very interested in how to maintain power through violence. If you could come up with a machine, a way that would kill more people faster, Washington wanted it. This was a direct lineage that set the stage and the path that led us to having nuclear arms and all the other ugly things we have in this world. I'm not saying Washington is solely responsible, of course. It's a long, convoluted, complicated path. I'm saying he played his part to open that door. In 1790, that is considered the start of the American Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution is considered to have started in Great Britain. 1790 is when it's said to have reached our shores, when Samuel Slater opened the first industrial mill in the U.S., increasing speed that cotton could be spun into yarn. This hastened the division between the North and the South. The South was based on agriculture. When you're in the South, you have a much longer growing season. You are invested in your slaves. You can make your money back. The more slaves you can buy, the more land you can cultivate through agriculture, the more money you can make. It's financially viable. The North also had plenty of slaves at this time, but it's not as financially viable. There is a shorter agricultural season. They struggled with these slaves. Buying a slave was like buying a house back then. You had to have money to buy a slave, and you better have some means for that slave to make that money back, or you were in the hole. And a slave, let's keep in mind, back, back then was considered property, like a machine. So when the Industrial Revolution reached these shores, who do you think was the most eager to employ this new way of making money? The North. The South already had their way, so we started seeing industry spread across the North fairly quickly. And as was said just then, Samuel Slater's first machine turning, um, where was I? Cotton. cotton into yarn. So where do you think that cotton's coming from? The North is reliant on the slave industry in the South. There's no ethical uh, enlightenment happening. There's just a different way of making money. The North could afford to start thinking, oh, we, now we don't believe in slaves because we can't make any money off of them. So, oh, it's horrid. Um, and Washington, with his love of machines, I say, made that polarity that led to the Civil War worse. And finally, I will end as my last charge against Washington, um, against his technology, um, with what I consider his legacy towards what becomes Manifest Destiny, which we'll go into soon with other presidents. Quote, All restrictions of trade would vanish. We must go in the old ways, disputing and now and then fighting until the globe itself is dissolved. Here we have the melting pot. Here we have empirical... Um, an empire that wants to cover the globe and dissolve it into the same people, destroying any diverse people that aren't Americans and making them into Americans. He stated this as a brave, new, noble vision, and we swallowed it as a brave, new, noble vision. But this was hastened by technology and especially the violence that technology fosters. And that's my case against General or President George Washington. Wow. And... I just, I must say that information that you shared about how the southern states had the longer growing season and there wasn't a, 
there wasn't a difference between morality above the Mason-Dixon line and below it. It it just made economic sense. That really blew my mind. So we've been through this revolutionary war with Great Britain, but but some of the politicians they were they were kind of thinking, well, even though France was our ally in the Revolutionary War, providing us with money and supplies. Um, Our natural ally is really Great Britain. So this next president, John Adams, who, by the way, was a lawyer from Massachusetts, before he became president, he was providing legal defense to British soldiers who were charged with murder in the Boston Massacre. So this is who our second president was, our first vice president also. And he was a Federalist. He was the only president elected under the Federalist Party. Um, Federalists were kind of in a nutshell. It seemed like they really wanted to keep their ties with the British um, friendly. And they were against the French, which the emerging Democratic Republican Party under Thomas Jefferson, who Gumby will talk about later, that was kind of like the beginning of the two-party system in government or um, for the elections. So John Adams, he, yeah, he was kind of a pompous ass in himself. Um, <laughs> and people didn't like him. They they called him, like, behind his back, uh, his rotundity. <laughs> and I think that might have led to uh, my first charge, an abuse of power, with the Alien and Sedition Acts that he implemented. He was very much, it, it seemed, looking back on how he was... Uh, managing the country it seemed like he was a monarchist like he really wanted to be like his excellency the president of the states of america um he wanted to have a formal title to rival uh england's let's see and it was the first contested election he actually ended up having thomas jefferson as his vice president which couldn't have been easy because like i said they were of differing views from different parties but these alien and sedition acts They were signed in uh, 1798, and they were making it more difficult for immigrants to become citizens. Um, They allowed the president to imprison or deport non-citizens who were deemed dangerous or who were from hostile nations. And they criminalized making false statements that were critical of the federal government, and that was the Sedition Act. And that one... I don't know, to me, it's cropped up in history several times under different names. Um, let's see, in Woodrow Wilson's presidency, he used it, and FDR's presidency, as well as Harry Truman. And the Alien Enemies Act, the one that that did not allow people to stay in the United States who were from hostile nations, that was actually employed... Um, as justification by the Trump administration of not allowing Muslims into our country. So these laws, even though they were signed back in 1798 and some expired, um, are still somewhat on the books under different names or under different clauses in our in our legal system. Let's see. He also, John Adams, was also involved in something called the XYZ Affair. And... Like I said, there there were some interesting things going on between the United States, Great Britain, and France. It would have seemed like if France had helped us to win our independence from Great Britain, we'd be cool with them, right? 
But under the XYZ affair, we found out that, uh, among other things, the United States was giving most favored nation status to Great Britain for trade and vice versa. So Great Britain and the United States were trading. They were kind of leaving out France and much to Great Britain's um, liking, you know, it was making France weaker. So they were trying to start wars with France. Um, so France was like, Hey, United States, you know how we owe, you know, we gave you that money. Will you kind of owe us back? And our response from the American government was, yeah, but that was under a different regime. That was under the, the regime that fell in France now. So we don't owe you anything. Um, and this really upset France. So, we were about to go to war with them. And before we did that, um, there were three delegates that were known as X, Y, and Z from France. And we sent three delegates over from the United States to meet with them. And each one of these delegates from France told our country that, look, the foreign minister of France is willing to negotiate with you, but he, he wants a bribe. And, you know, if you just pay him some money, he'll be willing to negotiate all this out and you'll be able to avoid a war. And even though that, that seems like, what? They're asking for bribes. That was a normal thing in um, in Europe. But our government under John Adams, who detested the French and, and disliked them more and more as he was having to work with Thomas Jefferson as his vice president, he was like, no, we're not, we're not going to do this with France. So we actually went to war with them, um, although it was undeclared. It was called the Quasi-War. And uh, let's see. This also was to the chagrin of Jefferson because he, he liked France and Adams didn't. So this was just another um, disruption within our government caused by um, our very strange connections with Great Britain and our disdain for France at the time. So in addition to the quasi-war, we were also starting to pick wars overseas um, off of the north coast of Africa. And I believe that the XYZ affair and the undeclared quasi-war with France was angering the American public, and it became the impetus for beginning to build up the United States Navy. John Adams is often called the father of the United States Navy because he started to ask for money to, to, um, to build the Navy up. But before we built up our Navy, we started noticing that our trade ships were being taken over by pirate ships off the Barbary Coast, that's North Africa. And we, meaning John Adams, we were actually bribing the pirates to not take our ships. So if you think about this double standard where we're, the, the president, John Adams, is giving money to pirates to stop taking our ships and our sailors and turning them into prisoners and slaves, but he's not willing to help to not have a war with France by giving them a bribe. So it's kind of a double standard. Um, and the Barbary Coast, um, the Barbary Wars, this went on from 1801 and then again in 1815. Now what's interesting is people think that it's just about our ships from the United States um, being taken by pirates. But we were actually aiding Sweden in subjugating a series of coastal towns in North Africa. So the stated reason was to crack down on piracy, but the wars 
that we waged destroyed the navies of Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, and secured European and U.S. shipping routes for goods and slaves in North Africa. U.S. representatives stated, when we can appear in the ports of various powers or on the coast of Barbary with ships of such force as to convince those nations that we are able to protect our trade and to compel them, if necessary, to keep faith with us, then and not before, we may probably secure a large share of the Mediterranean trade, which would largely and speedily compensate the U.S. for the cost of a maritime force, amply sufficient to keep all those pirates in awe and also make it in their interest to keep faith. And I suspect pirates is kind of like the way we use terrorists now. <laughs> so basically, John Adams utilized the anger of the American public for the French to fund the Navy to take over the shipping and trade routes in North Africa and to destroy their navies so that we, we wouldn't be challenged. Um, I think that is corruption, and it also is delving into foreign expansion and taking over of other countries. So I don't know if that would be terrorism or just colonialism. Assholery. <laughs> Back in the United States, um, John Adams was looking for more money to fund the Navy. So, And he was also trying to you know, continue fighting this quasi-war with France. So he turned to the people and said, look, we need to have this tax. And the people in Pennsylvania who, they didn't, I mean, they had money, but they weren't the, the ultra rich. They were wanting to fight back because they didn't feel like this tax was fair. And the reason why was they were actually trying to levy a tax on the number of and size of windows on the houses. <laughs> this was known as Fry's Rebellion. First the whiskey, then the windows. Yeah. So, all right. So let me let me see this. Um, Fry's Rebellion. Where am I? There's so many notes that we've taken. Yeah, we're we're in a flurry of notes right now. <laughs> all right. Fry's Rebellion was an armed tax revolt among the Pennsylvania Dutch farmers. Um, this was the third of three tax revolts, by the way. Gumby mentioned the whiskey tax rebellion, too. Yeah, the people had realized they're under uh, the rule of the wealthy again, trying to take their money again, so they weren't having any of that crap. So Congress was imposing $2 million in new taxes, and the tax was on real estate and slaves. Um, they apportioned $237,000 to be paid by the state of Pennsylvania, who had very few slaves at the time. And like I said, the tax was assessed upon dwellings and land with the value of the houses being determined by the number and size of windows. So there were these tax assessors riding around and counting windows on houses and people started to really get upset. Like, what is this? What's going on? And they refused to pay the tax, um, making the constitutional argument that this tax was not being levied in proportion to population. So this Pennsylvania auctioneer, John Fry's, he organized meetings beginning in February of 1799. At one of the meetings, um, the government representatives, in attempt to explain the tax, uh, they called this meeting, and the protesters began waving a liberty flag. Some were armed and in their Continental Army uniforms. John Fry's personally warned the tax assessors to quit, but they didn't, and he began to lead a small armed band that harassed the assessors. 
um, there was a local um, militia that actually followed the tax assessors out of town and they told them that they were going to put them under arrest, but instead they captured a number of the tax assessors and then they released them with a warning not to return and to tell the U.S. government what had happened to them. <laughs> Federal warrants were issued and the U.S. Marshal began arresting people for tax resistance. The framers were thugs. Yeah, they were. Um, two separate rebel groups independently vowed to liberate the prisoners, and they did without violence. In response, President John Adams called out a force of federal troops and local militias to march into the rebellious counties and begin making arrests of insurgents. Yes, they called them insurgents. John Fry's among them. 30 men, um, Fry's and two others, were tried for treason. Federalists wanted to hang them, but President Adams eventually pardoned, pardoned them, um, prompted by a narrower constitution constitutional definition of treason. So I thought that was interesting that, I mean, this shit was getting real. Like, people did not want to pay these taxes. They didn't feel like they were being fairly represented um, and fairly taxed for wars that really had nothing to do with them. It was all about the government and their uh, interests in trade and the rich people, of course, wanting to stay in power. My final charge is a human rights violation. Oh, by the way, I, I claim class hierarchy for that um, tax rebellion. Human rights violation. There was another rebellion in the summer of 1800. This was started by a slave by the name of Gabriel and sometimes known as Gabriel Prosser. He was a literate enslaved blacksmith um, who planned a large slave rebellion in Richmond. And something that I didn't realize um, that I learned was some of these slaves were hired out if they had skills that were desired by others. So not only were they working on the plantation or they were, you know, doing all these other jobs around the plantation, but then they were also hired out to make even more money for their owners. This is quite possibly the reason um, why Gabriel decided on this slave rebellion. Uh, but unfortunately, two slaves told on them, and the owners had already suspected that there might be something up. Uh, the slave owners called the Virginia governor at the time, James Monroe, um, and Governor Monroe decided to put an end to the education of blacks and the hiring out of any slaves. Now, that might have not necessarily been President Adams directly, but it was definitely under President Adams' presidency, um, administration at the time, and Gabriel was uh, hung along with all of the co-conspirators. Oh, and something else that was interesting, um, because when Gabriel was hired out, he had uh, exposure to all these different people in different places. They think that two of his co-conspirators might have been of French nationality, and remember what I said, there was this division happening in uh, U.S. politics. There was the Federalist Party that absolutely abhorred the French, and then there were the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans who were in favor of the French. Well, Governor Monroe was on the Democratic side, and when he found out in documentation that two of the co-conspirators of Gabri Gabriel's rebellion may have been of French nationality, he kind of swept that under the rug in court. So those are my charges against President Adams. Mm-hmm. All right, 
Buckle up, because this next guy is one of the most hateful bastards on my list. Thomas Jefferson assumed the presidency in 1801 with Aaron Burr as his vice president under the Democratic-Republican at the time, both the same party, even though the division was beginning to get wider, um, during his, what would I say, administration. My first charge against Jefferson is human trafficking. Boo. (laughs) Monticello, Jefferson's little um, palace, (laughs) big palace, was built atop a long tunnel for the slaves. So the slaves couldn't even come in through the back door at Monticello. They came in through a tunnel. Um, Jefferson would perform this party trick when he had company over, where he would have an empty bottle of wine and he would open a panel beside the fireplace, put in the empty bottle, and magically a new bottle of wine would appear to astonish the people at the party. Some poor slave was hiding in a tunnel underneath Monticello just waiting for an empty bottle of wine to replace it like a freaking magic trick. One time Jefferson has a visitor, um, you know, and we can assume that he selected this visitor to show around what he usually tried to hide from his visitors, which was the slave um, neighborhood around Monticello that he called Mulberry Row. Um, And the visitor said, that Mulberry Row would only appear poor and uncomfortable to people of northern feelings. So, Jefferson, in 1789, he planned to shift away from tobacco. This was while he was uh, the U.S. Minister to France. Um, tobacco, which was a sacred plant to the Native Americans, this is where we learned about the plant from. The white people developed such a love and addiction to tobacco that uh, people decided, well, the more the better. Let's get rich from this stuff. It's not a sacred plant anymore. It's a commodity. So Jefferson and his slaves, well, Jefferson's slaves, grew as much tobacco to make money as they could. When you grow tobacco like that, it's such a powerful plant, it sucks all the nutrients out of the soil. He couldn't grow enough crops to feed the slaves anymore, and he was starting to lose money. So he switched over to wheat, which a lot of the plantations were doing. uh, George Washington had to do it 30 years before Jefferson. Washington tried hemp and a couple other crops before switching over to wheat. Now, growing wheat is a more specialized industry. Instead of just having everybody out there, you know, picking tobacco, now you've got to have specialized jobs, different training. The slavery became much more hierarchical, and it um, produced a lot more resentment among the slaves. As Secretary of State... In the 1790s, Jefferson, who was a big proponent of abolition, of the end of slavery, he even was the one credited with writing, all men are created equal, which was so shocking at the time that certain southern states had to change it to all free men are created equal. In the 1790s, he becomes mysteriously silent on slavery. Now, if we look into that, why Jefferson might have gotten quiet in the 1790s on slavery, we look at 1792. In a letter to Washington, Jefferson realizes that he makes a dependable 4% profit every year from the birth of black children. Mm. So just by his slaves reproducing, no matter what the markets do to his industry of grain, he makes 4% profit just because the slaves are reproducing. 
Another letter early in the 1790s in a communication to an acquaintance who'd suffered financial losses, Jefferson advises he should have been invested in Negroes, and if he has any cash left, every farthing of it should be laid out in land and Negroes, but which besides a present support because of the jobs they can do, bring a silent profit of from 5 to 10% in this country by the increase in their value. The formula that Jefferson stumbled upon became the engine of Monticello and the entire nation's slaveholding industry. So while this man is being credited for his high thoughts of freedom, he just changed the, the whole industry of slavery into a much darker realm. In case you uh, haven't read between the lines here what I'm talking about, we're talking about breeding slaves now. Not just owning them, not just working them, making money off a of human flesh, breeding them like dogs. Like slave husbandry. Yeah. Um, in 1796, Jefferson profited from a new slave industry because the, um, what am I trying to say? The wheat was not bringing in enough money from him. So he started a nailery, making nails. It was hot, smoky, tedious work. And he was in direct competition with the local penitentiary. As punishment, the penitentiary was putting people to work making nails. Jefferson decided he could compete with that with his slaves. After all, he owned people. Um, a letter recently surfaced describing 10, 11, and 12-year-old boys, slaves, whipped to make them work in the nailery. If they didn't go to the nailery, which was hard work, they were whipped and whipped until they did. Um, this is how Monticello play, paid its grocery bills. This information was deliberately deleted from published records until recently when it surfaced. Um, as vice president in 1798, um, there was um, later in the 1840s a memoir written by Isaac Granger of this time. Um, Isaac Granger, now freed in the 1840s, describes the winter of 1798 when the nailery halted because Granger refused to whip slaves anymore. He was a slave put in charge of the other slaves at the nailery. Colonel Thomas Mann Randolph, who's Jefferson's son-in-law, tried to protect Granger from Jefferson's wrath. The workforce resisted, but Granger would not whip them. In other words, he was dealing with a revolt, and it was his job to get the people working, and he just refused. He's like, I'm not going to whip these people. They don't want to work. They're slaves. I, I, you know, I know it's my job. I know I'm like, I don't know what I'm risking here. I can't whip another human being. Um, Jefferson eventually found out and called a professional to whip the slaves, most likely the white overseer, William Page, who ran Jefferson's farms across the river and had a reputation for his cruelty. Now the nailery was going again. 1800, a man named Gabriel Lilly arrived peacefully at Monticello, and for a while everything was peaceful and running smoothly. But soon Gabriel Lilly became so cruel that even Jefferson started to worry about him. He told Lilly to show restraint on the slaves, but keep production up among the young boys in the nailery. He replaced Lilly with William Stewart, who was a drunk Irishman who was known to show leniency. He was pretty easy on the slaves, but production declined, so he brought back Lilly. Rather than have, uh, he would rather have the cruelty if it profited him. He warned the Irish joiner master next door of Lilly's methods so the violence that he might see wouldn't shock him. A fight broke out between two boys when one tricked the other by hiding a bundle of rod. Um... The other boy, who was getting the trick played on him, was so terrified by how Lily, who was such a cruel slave master, might react that he ended up panicking. He fought the first boy and ended up smashing the other boy's skull in. The boy that got his skull smashed in miraculously survived. 
Jefferson sold the boy south to terrify the other boys. That's about the worst thing you could do to a slave. They were terrified of what happened down south. So he took this boy who was terrified of Lily and sold him down south as an example. A 1941 author spins the tale. He talks about this event, and here's what it says in The Way of an Eagle. In this beehive of industry, no discord or revilings found entrance. There were no signs of discontent on the black shining faces as they worked under the direction of their master. The women sang at their tasks and the children old enough to work, made nails leisurely, not too overworked for a prank now and then. <laughs> oh, what a lark. Oh, God. Jefferson had sex with at least one slave named Sally Hemming after the death of his wife, Martha. Turns out Sally Hemming was three quarters white and Martha brought her along. It was Martha's slave. Um, it was also Martha's half-sister. So Martha's father was a slave raper. Now, what I find most interesting here is she stayed a slave. This is Martha's half-sister who was not given her freedom. She's still a slave. And then Thomas Jefferson, after his wife dies, starts having sex with a woman who cannot say no. She's still a slave. This is rape. He did not give her her freedom. He wanted her a slave. Boo! What an asshole! <laughs> Nasty. And think of the sexual scandals we have nowadays. Look at this. Jefferson, this is a framer. 1804. Nail production soared under Lily. Jefferson was raking in the money. He whipped a 17-year-old boy uh, slave three times in one day for being sick for three days. Now, we don't know honestly, if the slave was sick or not. I read about some of the ways slaves would revolt. Sometimes they'd steal things. Sometimes they'd play sick. They would try to resist slave, uh, slavery in the small ways they could. But it sounds like this guy was legitimate, legitimately sick because there was this guy, James Oldman, who was a white carpenter who was caring for the boy. Um, he protested this boy being whipped and he complained about it to Jefferson. The slave ran away. Now, Jefferson didn't slave, send the slave catchers after him, but he tried to persuade him through Oldman to return. The slave refused. Not only was Lily not reprimanded for whipping the boy, but he demanded a raise. Jefferson didn't want to give it, but he wrote a friend that Lily, quote, is as good a one as can be. Certainly, I can never get a man who fulfills my purposes better than he does, end quote. Now, in Jefferson's Second term as president, and by the way, he was president with the information I just conveyed about Lily. Um, during his second term in 1805, Jefferson's slave, James Hubbard, worked hard, saved, bought clothes to disguise himself. Now, I just wanted to tell this story about James Hubbard because this is such a good story of resistance. Um, he worked hard, he saved, he gained trust, he uh, got, you know, secretly clothes that made him look really good, and he won a trusted job of hauling. And then, when he found his moment, early in 18. 05, early in Jefferson's second term, he escaped. He was captured and returned. Then he was caught stealing nails, trying to save up more money for another escape. Jefferson forgave him, benevolent Jefferson, when Hubbard converted to baptism. Jefferson kept at least one spy in his slave community. Imagine what that does to undermine the trust in the community. Already the hardships of slavery, and now you know there's, there's people and you don't know who they are that you can't trust. Jefferson's given them special favors to tell on you. In 1808, um, the U.S. bans the importation of slaves, which leads to a new industry. Now, this is one of the reasons we're taught that Jefferson was such a great guy, because no more was he going to accept slaves from other countries. But keep in mind what I just told you. 
What does that mean for the U.S. economy when he's figuring out that breeding slaves brings in money? He's almost got the monopoly on it. He has got the monopoly on this idea, and he's found a new way for people to make money that is even more dehumanizing than slavery was before. That's pretty fucked up. It's sick. In 1809, after Jefferson was president, he retires from his presidency and moves the nailery downhill away from his house just 100 yards from the overseer's house. So now the slaves have to work right underneath the house. There's not a moment away from their slave master. And this way, Jefferson can take the unpleasantness, still profit from it, and move it downhill where he doesn't have to look at it. Um, In 1810, one year later, James Hubbard vanishes again, makes a final escape. Jefferson sent a slave tracker who brought him back where he was whipped, jailed, and then sold to an overseer. Mm. Um, and by the way, in 1811, Spain abolishes slavery. So now we're, we're the nation that uh, prides itself on its reputation for liberty. Spain has beat us now, abolished slavery. Cuba was the one country under Spain that rejected it and kept its slaves at this time. In 1817, Jefferson's old friend and Revolutionary War hero, Thaddeus Kuzosko, a Polish nobleman, died and left Jefferson in charge of his fortune with the instructions to purchase all of Jefferson's slaves' land and some farming equipment to start a new life. He was a passionate abolitionist. Jefferson, also with the reputation as being an abolitionist, even though he owned slaves, declined the job. He writes in one of his memoirs, A child raised every two years is of more profit than the crop of the best laboring man. In this, as in all other cases, providence has made our duties and our interests coincide perfectly. With respect, therefore, to our women and their children, I must pray you to inculcate upon the overseers that it is not their labor, but their increase, which is the first consideration with us. In other words, breed them Negroes. That was Jefferson's bottom line. Wow. In 1826, Jefferson died, freeing a handful of slaves in his will, including Joseph Fawcett, but not his family. Fawcett tried to buy his family. He struggled to buy his family and managed to get his wife back and three children after a lot of effort. His oldest child was given by Jefferson's will to his grandson, and three of his daughters were sold, one of whom later escaped. It said of Jefferson concerning his uh, relationship with slavery by the abolitionist Moncure Conway, Never did a man achieve more fame for what he did not do. And my second charge against Jefferson, violating indigenous rights. Now, where to start? Let's start with (laughs) 1776 through 1779. Um, Jefferson promoted Indian removal, recommending forcing the Cherokee and the Shawnee out of their ancestral lands to west of the Mississippi River. Jefferson said, Indian removal is the only way to ensure the survival of Native American people. In other words, getting them out of the way of the settlers is good for the Indians. It's for their own good. This wasn't implemented until years later under President Jackson, but it was Jefferson's idea. Jefferson believed that Indians, though equal to whites in mind and body, were culturally and technologically inferior, and that Indian land should be taken over by whites. In 1792... Um, at the end, as he quit being Secretary of State, um, right at the end, as Secretary of State, he claimed the doctrine of discovery, which disregards indigenous land rights and was developed by European states, um, as inter- and he said it was international law applicable to the United States as well, which this basically says is if a white person shows up and there's nothing but indigenous people there, they've discovered it. It's theirs. So it totally disregards any rights the indigenous people would have on their own land. 
1801, Jefferson, now president, his first act as president was to make a deal with Georgia that if they released legal claims to discovery, what he just, uh, as Secretary of State, kind of implemented and encouraged, in lands west, then the U.S. military would expel the Cherokee from Georgia. The Georgia already had a standing treaty with the U.S. government guaranteeing their lands. The new deal that Jefferson struck violated it. In 1803, two years into his presidency, into a private letter to William Henry Harrison, soon to become a president himself, Jefferson encouraged trade with the Indians to put them in debt to get their land. They can either leave us or become us. Now he's employing the very tactics that he and others had learned when Britain imposed this on the Americans and it was so wrong. He was thinking, well, that's a pretty good idea. Let's do it to the Indians. So instead of going outright warfare with these powerful tribes, and we might not win this war, um, let's trade with them, get them addicted to our goods, and then we have them under our thumb. By the way, isn't that a tactic that seems to be used on us now? You know, we ran out of Indians to uh, fight, so now it's think of how many poor people are addicted to goods. Think of how many people don't rebel right now, no matter how much injustice they see, because they don't know how to do without the crap that they buy at the store. Jefferson wanted to flood the border along the Mississippi River with white settlers. The country was still recovering from the Revolutionary War, and the plan was to coerce Indians to assimilate and become dependent on America rather than go to war with the powerful tribes. This was called the Enlightenment Plan. So in other words, Jefferson was saying, this is what the smart people do. We don't go to war. That's vulgar. Oh boy. We undermine their community. We make them dependent. In 1803, the same year, the Louisiana Purchase was made. Jefferson bought the land from Napoleon, who needed money to finance the Great French War. Now, Spain had sold this territory to the French. They didn't want the Americans to have it. America was getting a progressively bad reputation. They didn't want to empower whatever the hell was happening that was calling itself the United States of America. So Spain was pretty upset when the French turned around, needed the money, figured they were so far away and so busy they couldn't keep this land anyway, and sold it for pretty cheap to Jefferson. Um, the U.S. actually had to pay more money to some of the Indians on the land to pay them off so they wouldn't fight than they did the French. Some of the Indians, like Tecumseh, fought the sale. A lot of the tribes that were on this land that were not consulted whether they agreed with this or not said, no, this land is not for sale. Of course, they were not listened to. The land stretched from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains and nearly doubled the size of the United States. Um, Jefferson immediately sent Lewis and Clark west to establish U.S. sovereignty to try to get a stake in the land further. <laughs> the land greed was just rampant, and especially this new branch of the Republican Democratic Party that became the Democratic Party was especially greedy. Um, ooh, let's see, what else do we have under this charge? <laughs> okay, in 1818... <clears throat> no, no, I was under another president. My third charge against Jefferson is fake news. <laughs> so we hear so much from Trump, you know, that's fake news, it's fake news, fake news. Well, Jefferson was the framer of fake news. Listen to what this little bitch did. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe this when I found this out. 1791. Secretary of State Jefferson, this is under the Washington administration, hires poet Philip Fernew, among other people, to write bad things in the paper about Adams, Hamilton, Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, um, John Adams, the second president before him, and George Washington, the first president. 
Oh, I was just going to say um, Hamilton and Adams were the Federalists, and George Washington kind of sided with the Federalists for the most part. When Washington asked him to do something about Fernu because he knew he was under Jefferson's employ, Jefferson refused to fire him and lied to the President of the United States, swearing, in the presence of heaven, I quote, that he had nothing to do with it. Oh, my God. This was during the Whiskey Revolution, around that time where there was a lot of upset. He fomented so much rebellion. He actually was uh, butting head so much with Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton that he threw a little bitch uh, tantrum and said, I quit. I quit. I'm not going to be Secretary of, of Defense anymore or Secretary of State. I'm going to Monticello and me and my friends are going to make trouble for you guys. Mm. So, indeed he does. He starts forging letters. He even forges letters uh, of George Washington, supposedly during the Revolutionary War, letters that were supposedly from Washington to England, saying he missed the time of England's rule to discredit Washington. It pissed people off so much they were making effigies of the politicians with nooses around their necks. They hated the U.S. government. They threw rocks at Hamilton when he had the nerve to show up at a public event in New York, and he had to flee. This was all because of Jefferson, who wouldn't sign his name to anything. He was hiring other people to do it. From the safety of his mansion, Monticello. Let's see. Jefferson, Jefferson, Jefferson. Mm, Okay, in 1802. (laughs) So, you know, Jefferson's getting all this fake news started. Now he's the president. In 1802, editor by the last name of Calendar, reported the truth of Jefferson's slave concubine. He published that Jefferson was sleeping with his slave, Sally Hemming. By the way, Calendar was one of the people that was employed by Jefferson many years ago to spread this gossip about the other people. (laughs) Now Jefferson can't stand fake news, and he condemned it, though he'd formerly paid him to expose Hamilton's scandals. So... For that reason, I condemn Jefferson for fake news. And I believe that leads me to my last charge, which is abuse of power. Here's my case for Jefferson's abuse of power. He's an asshole. He's an asshole. (laughs) Case closed. No, no, I've got more. So as president in his first year as president, 1801, Jefferson says, However, our present interests may restrain us within our own limits. It is impossible not to look forward to distant times when our rapid multiplication will expand itself beyond those limits and cover the whole northern, if not the southern continent, with a people speaking the same language, governed in similar form by similar laws. This was manifest destiny summed up in a paragraph, and this led to all kinds of accelerated horrors upon the people of this land. When you consider what that means to spread one way of life over other people who don't want to live that way, one language over other people who have their own language, they've been speaking and they're proud to speak it. Jefferson was encouraging the country to force themselves upon every single corner. And indeed, America has continued on with Jefferson's vision to this day. In 1801, um, as Teresa alluded to, the first Barbary War, um, Jefferson dispatched Marines to the Berber nation of North Africa to persuade Tripoli, and this is that song we hear from the Marines, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. That Tripoli. That Tripoli. <laughs> to release U.S. sailors held hostage and to end pirate, I put pirate in quotes because we probably called pirate anybody that was making money in a way that didn't profit us, attacks on merchant ships. 
Now, I put this as an abuse of power because what the hell business do we have around Africa? Um, you know, it's just why were the merchants there in the first place? Apparently, they weren't wanted. <laughs> so this is adds to my case of the manifest destiny and the abuse of power. We are already spreading into places we don't belong. We're not welcome. We will not accept limits. And this was considered a heroic thing. In 1804, the Electoral College was ratified by the Congress. And this was under Jefferson. The Electoral College, which has plagued us to this day. The Electoral College basically decides by representatives of each state um, who's going to be the president. Now, sometimes that aligns with what the popular vote goes along. And then the popular vote can feel like, oh, we got the president that we voted for. It works. But time and time again, we see that the Electoral College sometimes goes another way. And who do you think has the right to pick the president if the popular vote goes against the Electoral College? The Electoral College. I've seen it happen twice in my own lifetime. George W. Bush versus Al Gore. And now Trump versus uh, Clinton. And still it stands. And it took effect and took root under Jefferson. Now, you'll find reasons for this. They say that some people were ignorant of the candidates. They couldn't make it to the polls. So they have representatives to do this job for us. It's framed as a service. Well, nowadays, everybody can make it to the polls. We all have TV. We all have radio. And yet this thing is still on the books and we still accept it and we still tell everybody, get out and vote. Um, So I think this was just a way for the government to make sure that the right decisions to keep the right people in power keep getting made. And, you know, if the American people get to, like, feel like they voted and, you know, their candidate got picked, all the better. Best way to control people is to make them feel like they have power, not to subjugate them. Let's see if we've got anything else on Jefferson. No, that's my case against Jefferson. So, uh, yeah, that sleazy bastard has no right to be our leader. Oh, my God. Yeah. And what was that? What was that thing that we heard? Okay, well, I'll just let that go. (laughs) All right. So the next president, James Madison, was a slave owning plantation owner from Virginia. Um. And that sounds great because he was also the father of our Constitution. Who else um, better to be the father of our Constitution? Well, I'm not exactly sure how to classify this. I had abuse of power and then I, I wrote over that corruption. But James Madison proposed the three-fifths compromise. And, and that also led to the electoral college that Gumby just talked about. So the three-fifths compromise was for the slave states to have a little bit more representation with a little bit less taxation. Um, The northern states uh, didn't have slaves, so they would only be taxed on the population that they had, whereas the southern states had slaves, which was was property. Um, So they were going to be taxed according to their numbers and their wealth. So the three-fifths compromise counted each slave as three-fifths of a person. I don't know what charge you put on that, but that at least deserves many, many smacks in the face for James Madison. Um, Let's see. And again, like what Gumby said about the Electoral College, it allows the powerful to influence who gets elected despite the popular vote. Um, I also charge James Madison with ineptitude. Um, during his administration, he was in there for two terms, 
uh, was the War of 1812. Now, this was with Britain and their Indian or indigenous allies here in the Americas. And we had just been like buddy-buddy with Great Britain. They were the, you know, most favored nation for trade. Um, But now we're back to to having fights with them um, based on probably money. So back in uh, the time right before the war, not everyone wanted to go to war. Um, And there were these attacks on a Baltimore newspaper. It's called the Baltimore Mob Attack. And it was basically where this uh, this guy who was a Federalist, he didn't want to go to war. So he wrote this anti-war editorial. <coughs> and um, because he did that, a bunch of Republicans or Democratic Republicans that would have been like the Jeffersonians, they came and tore up his office and, and threatened him. Um, this mirrored the times during the quasi-war with France where the Federalists under President John Adams, tried to suppress wartime dissent through the passage of the Sedition Laws, which upset the Jeffersonian Republicans so much because they thought it was an attempt to reduce freedom of speech. But now, with the War of 1812, many of those same Republicans, those Jeffersonian Republicans, are urging the Sedition Laws to be reenacted because now there are people speaking out against this war. So it's just, it's a double standard. It's politicians maneuvering um, at different times to maintain power and to suppress the people's dissent of of their choices. There was also the matter of, during the War of 1812, the siege of Washington. Um, James Madison, like, you had one job, you know, to protect (laughs) the country, and you allowed the British to come in and take over Washington and burn the Capitol and the White House. Um, Whoops. Uh, also human rights violations. The War of 1812 were, it also included the Indian allies or indigenous people of this land. And this was the time of Tecumseh's War, which was part of the 60 years war for the Great Lakes region. Um, this include the famous Battle of Tippecanoe with William Henry Harrison, who later became president. Um, the Creek War, where 1500 Creeks were killed. And Madison actually gave an award to Andrew Jackson, a commission as major general. Um, There was also the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. If you just give me one moment. Battle of Horseshoe Bend happened where Andrew Jackson killed 800 more Creeks who were defending their homeland. Um, There were several treaties signed. Of course, we've heard about treaties. So you could put that under another column of assholish things. Um, human rights violations as it pertains to slavery. The largest uprising, slave uprising, took place in 1811. It was called the German Coast Uprising. It was a revolt of black slaves in parts of the territory of Orleans. Uh, This was along the coast near New Orleans. And it involved... Some claimed 200 to 500 slaves. They went on a 20-mile march over two days. They burned five plantation houses and several sugarcane houses and crops, armed with mostly hand tools. Uh, White men formed militia companies 
and in one of the battles, they killed 40 to about 45 of the escaped slaves, and they, the white people suffered no casual, casualties. Then they hunted down and killed several others without a trial over the next two weeks. White planters and officials interrogated, tried, executed, and decapitated 44 additional slaves. Um, let's see. I'm trying to see if there were any other details I wanted to say about that. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty violent and disgusting considering that at any point in time any of these presidents could have decided to stop slavery but they didn't so human rights violation war crimes um interestingly enough james madison thought he he didn't think that black people could be integrated into white society he believed former slaves were unlikely to successfully integrate into Southern society. In the late 1780s, he became interested in the idea of African-Americans establishing colonies in Africa. Um, he ended his life as the president of the American Colonization Society. Oh, what a great name. Which founded the settlement of Liberia for former slaves. And I'm not sure if you're going to get to this. You, you do have something in there for Monroe? Okay, cool. And uh, let's see, what else happened? Um, the Second Barbary Wars, which we talked about a little bit already with... Uh, the United States hated paying money to anybody. And the Second Barbary War was over fees and taxes to use the waters of... The territorial waters of Tripoli. Um, there was also the Treaty of Ghent that ended the War of 1812. And the British had added Article 9 in the Treaty of Ghent that that talked about the treatment of indigenous people and their land. And of course, treaties, we ignored that article. Um, something else that happened that wasn't necessarily James Madison's fault, but I will say it could have added to the expansion and movement of people into the West, was this year without a summer. Um, it was 1816 and there was an eruption of a volcano in, uh, I believe, the islands of Indonesia that covered the area and the, and blew dust and ash up into the sky that eventually made its way to the northeast of uh, the United States. And so the year without a summer, there, there just wasn't a whole lot of sunlight. The crops didn't grow. It, there was a huge famine, and it caused many people to leave the northeast of the United States and possibly move more into Western territories, which of course meant more violence against indigenous people and stealing of their land. And that's what I've got for James Madison. Screw you, dude. Okay, moving along. Our fifth president is James Monroe. He became president in 1817 with Daniel D. Tompkins as his vice president under the Democratic Republican Party. My first charge, impeachable offense against Monroe, is human trafficking. Um, after law and politics, Monroe filled his childhood dream. You remember your childhood dream? Maybe you wanted to be an astronaut. Maybe you wanted to be a doctor. You know what Monroe wanted? He wanted to own a plantation full of Negroes and wield political power. So, oh, it's so touching. You fulfilled his childhood dream. Yeah. Despite much land and many harshly treated slaves, his plantation was never profitable. Monroe's lavish lifestyle, like his uh, one of our, our country's heroes, George Washington, he couldn't stop himself from spending all that money, and he incurred debt. He sold his property 
Oh, let me see here. He sold his property. And his property also included slaves. So he was separating families to pay off his debts because he wouldn't quit spending. As the governor of Virginia in 1800, Teresa already alluded to this, Governor Monroe sent a militia to suppress Gabriel's Rebellion, which was a slave rebellion originating on a plantation six miles from Richmond. Gabriel and 27 other slaves planned on attacking Monroe and holding him hostage, um, but they were stopped by a storm, oddly enough. All the slaves were hanged for treason, though no whites were murdered, and this was under the order of then-Governor Monroe. Boo! In 1817, 17 years later, the American Colonization Society that Teresa just alluded to was established. Um, it established colonies outside of the U.S. for freed blacks. Slave owners like Monroe and Andrew Jackson hoped to prevent free blacks from encouraging slaves in the South to rebel. Liberia's capital is named after Monroe, Monrovia. Unbelievable. I mean, just think of the name of that society, American Colonization Society, and their reasoning is if there are freed blacks, they might convince other blacks, hey, you don't need to be a slave. Fight this crap. And they didn't want any of it. They all owned slaves. It was ca- it was counter to their financial interest. Mm-hmm. We will see this motivation again and again through every president. They care about their money, and they have too damn much of it. <sighs> all right. What else have we got for human trafficking? All right, that's my case for human trafficking. I am also charging Monroe with war crimes. Um, in 1818, Spain then has power over Florida. Florida is Spanish territory. It's unable to restrain the Seminoles in Florida who cross the border to raid American villages and farms. The Seminoles are kind of a compilation of a bunch of tribes that were shoved aside by this growing uh, settlement of what's more and more becoming the United States soil. Um, They also protected escaped slaves. Keep in mind, Spain now had abolished slavery. So slaves, instead of heading north at this time, sometimes if they were closer to Florida, they'd head to Florida. And the Seminoles didn't believe in slavery either. They protected them. Monroe sent the military into the into Spanish Florida, led by Andrew Jackson, who was a military leader at the time, to attack the Seminoles. They seized Pensacola. Many members of Congress criticized this act of undeclared war upon foreign soil, but Monroe defended Jackson. The Seminoles refused to hand over escaped slaves, and their guerrilla resistance continued. This is an act of war. This is a war crime. Um, I charge Monroe with ineptitude. In 1797, Monroe publishes renewed accusations against Hamilton. He'd already accused him five years earlier against corruption, and Hamilton said, actually, um, I'm not guilty of corruption. What I am guilty of is uh, sleeping with one of my friend's wives, and she's really bitter about it, and they're trying to blackmail me. So when they talked to the woman, she said, those letters are actually forged. I didn't write those. He's trying to get out of trouble. That sat for five years. Monroe comes back to it, and uh, now he's accusing Hamilton Um, Hamilton charges Monroe to a duel, challenges Monroe to a duel, which he accepts, choosing Aaron Burr as his second. Now, if you know anything about history, this is very ironic. (laughs) Burr convinced both of them that they were being childish and helped settle matters, so they didn't actually come to shots in their duel. Not that time. I charge that with ineptitude because, I mean, 
we keep talking about what we expect, the decorum of our public officials. We got two guys that are like in a dispute and threatening to shoot each other. Is this the decorum and dignity we want in this office? I mean, if it is, then what the hell are we talking about? Like somebody getting a blow job in the White House nowadays for <laughs> my God. So in 1819, we have a depression. Now we hire a president to look after the people. That is their job. To they are elected by the people for the people, correct? So when there's a depression, uh, uh, something that doesn't serve the people, I'd say the president's responsible for it because they always take responsibility for anything good that happens. So we have the Panic of 1819. It's the first major depression since the ratification of the Constitution in, in 1788. And global markets readjusted to peacetime production after the War of 1812 and the Napoleonic Wars. Unemployment, bankruptcies, and foreclosures provoked resentment against banking and business enterprises. So we're starting to see war makes profit. As soon as war is over, there's a panic. There's bankruptcy. The economy fails. We have built an economy based on violence. Um, also, in 1824, under Monroe's watch, there's the Hard Scrabble Riot in Providence, Rhode Island. A white mob destroyed the homes of 20 free blacks after a black man refused to get off the sidewalk in this poor interracial neighborhood. Four people were tried, one found guilty. This is Rhode Island. This is the North, the abolitionist North, the free states. And here we have resentment. We're taught by history that slaves fled north for the benevolence of the enlightened white way of the northerners. And yet we're going to see over and over race riots. The blacks were not safe or not protected by their government or the states and especially not the president. Um, I would also charge Monroe with abuse of power. In 1820, the Federalist Party is starting to collapse, so Monroe is re-elected unopposed. He's the only president other than Washington in the history of the United States to, to do so. I say that's an abuse of power. There's no choices. Who the hell are you supposed to vote for? Monroe just gets ushered right back into office. <laughs> Who are you going to vote for? Monroe or Monroe? Yeah. So that, to me, is an abuse of power. That is not the democratic process. In 1823, three years later, the Monroe Doctrine, this piece of shit doctrine, it states that the U.S. is neutral regarding European conflicts. We won't pick sides and that we do not accept recolonization of any country by former European masters, though we won't interfere with existing European colonies in the Americas. So in other words, we're telling everybody we don't exist your colonization as we're colonizing. Mm -hmm. We're the only people that have the right to do that. Doesn't that remind you of the attitude we see everywhere nowadays? It started a long time ago. And this exceptionalism. set the exceptionalism, this set the precedent, one of the many things. The US no longer considers the Western Hemisphere open to new colonization, which was a jab at Russia. This thing that we have against Russia started a long time ago. Russia was trying to colonize places along the uh, Western Canada, along Oregon, along that place. We said nope. We're not colonizing it yet, but we don't accept your right to do it. You are now criminals if you do it. It's an act of war. Um, 
This became a justification for U.S. intervention into Latin American states and led to the toppling of governments unfriendly to U.S. interests. So in other words, it didn't matter whether the government served the people or not. If they didn't serve us, even though it wasn't our country, we found ways to start screwing with them. We toppled governments. If you wonder why these other countries can't take care of themselves, why they always seem to be in a state of unrest, these barbarians, and we have to come in and like help them, we wouldn't let them become restful. Anytime that their government started to get strong, and we got worried about our financial interest, thanks to Monroe, we started toppling their governments before they could get strong. We didn't want the competition. It was to Latin American communities what Manifest Destiny was to the Indians. The Monroe Doctrine opened up a nightmare in South America that continues to this day, set a horrible precedent. This is an abuse of power. And finally, I charge President Monroe with corruption. Looking at my notes in 1822, the U.S. is the first nation to recognize Argentina, Peru, Colombia, Chile, and Mexico as independent nations from Spain as they succeeded. Secretary of State at the time, Adams, under Monroe's supervision, declares a policy of the U.S. to uphold Republican institutions and to seek treaties of commerce on a most favored national basis. This is closely tied in with the Monroe Doctrine. This is corrupt. This means that we care more about our money and we will interfere in ways by using our economy as a weapon to keep American power. I think this is corruption. So those are my charges against Monroe. And I believe that was John Quincy Adams because he had a role in writing the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah, I believe so. And who's next in line for the presidency? John Quincy Adams. Oh! I'm now, sure he's going to be a good guy. Before John Quincy Adams was president, he was ambassador to Russia. And I just thought this was interesting because we were listening to the impeachment hearings for uh, current President Trump. And evidently, um, President Zelensky of Ukraine loves his ass, meaning President <laughs> Trump. And I, I believe that John Quincy Adams loved Tsar Alexander's ass. I'm so glad you fit that in there. <laughs> yeah, back in uh, back in the 1800s. So I just, I'm not even sure it, it, this is corruption or just ineptitude, something, abuse of power. But when John Quincy Adams was the ambassador to Russia, he possibly got his 24-year-old sister-in-law, whose name, by the way, is Kitty, to meet with Tsar Alexander of Russia, who was married. Adams' political enemies, including Andrew Jackson, accused him of, quote, making use of a beautiful girl to seduce the passions of the Emperor Alexander and sway him to political purposes. Hmm. <laughs> so that was back. I wonder in, what that means. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, that was back in the early 1800s. Now, getting along to the election of 1824. Andrew Jackson actually won the plurality of the popular vote and the highest percentage of electoral college votes. But he didn't become president. What? Voting didn't work? No. So the powers that be, they were like, hmm, what can we think up that, you know, is a good way to get what we want? So they just held another election, a contingent election in the House of Representatives. And guess who won? Not Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams. Oh, and there was this little thing called 
the corrupt bargain. So Andrew Jackson, he didn't even actually want to run. He was nominated by Tennessee, but he he ended up getting the most votes, both in the Electoral College and popular vote. So who else was running besides him and John Quincy Adams? There were two people. I believe one was William Crawford, who was like sickly and there were just problems with him. And then Henry Clay. Now, Henry Clay was one of those like super political badasses that would just... He would just make up all these plans to further his agenda. And he agreed, even though he had been third um, in the number of votes, he talked to his constituents and said, take the votes in this contingent election that you were going to vote for me and put them towards John Quincy Adams to win. And that arguably is why John Quincy Adams won. But what was in it for Henry Clay? Well, he became secretary of state under John Quincy Adams, a.k.a. the corrupt bargain. So corruption right there. Um, By the way, John Quincy Adams is the son of John Adams, and like his father, he was a lawyer from Massachusetts. Um, He wrote the, or was involved in the Adams-Onis Treaty, which took away lands uh, from both the indigenous people and escaped slaves in Florida. He was also the president that uh, during his administration, the Erie Canal and the Baltimore and Ohio or B&O Railroad were both opened, uh, which allowed more people to flood into the West. In fact, I heard this one account of people that were coming over the Atlantic Ocean, getting to the shores of New York, taking the Erie Canal to the Great Lakes and all the way over into, I believe, Michigan or Wisconsin. And then from there, they could take a a, a wagon train or whatever, even further west. So this was just a floodgate that was opened to the west. And of course, it led to indigenous um, massacres. So one of these such massacres that happened under John Quincy Adams was the Dressing Point Massacre. And that is where, if I can find my card... 40 to 50 of the Karankawa people in Mexican Texas were killed by the Texian militia. Um, Now, that wasn't in the old Northwest Territory, but that was in the southern expansion of uh, the Texas Territory. And then there was the Winnebago or Ho-Chunk War. The Ho-Chunks, I believe, were uh, a faction of the Winnebago tribe. And if I can find my card for that. Gosh, there's so many things around here. <laughs> I mean, really. I'm not sure where it went to. Oh, no, this is terrible. Here it is. No, that's not. Ah. Okay, well, I'll try to find it. Maybe I won't. Um, but that was a serious war that ended up... Oh, here it is, right here. All right, the 1827 Ho-Chunk or Winnebago War. Americans began to trespass on Indian land. The Indians had mined for lead for thousands of years, and they were using some of that lead now to export, um, so it had become an important part of the Ho-Chunk's economy. The murder of a settler family, who the wife was a native, um, in March 1826, led to uh, a huge dispute. So the Ho-Chunks decided to deliver six men to the United States at Fort Crawford. These six men weren't necessarily involved in the murder, but these six men were, they were kind of like sacrifices so that it would deflect punishment away from the tribe and appease American anger for the settler family being killed. 
Colonel Josiah Snelling reinforced the fort amid rumors that the Ho-Chunks were going to attempt to free the prisoners that they had just given over. Eventually, two Ho-Chunks were handed over and indicted for the murders. The false story of execution of the prisoners, who the Ho-Chunks thought their prisoners had been killed, um, along with the incessant American trespassing, convinced some of the Ho-Chunk to take up arms against the United States. On November 3, 1828, President John Quincy Adams, having been told the executions of the further prisoners who hadn't been, but had been rumored to be executed, would spark another uprising. So he pardoned the prisoners of the Ho-Chunk in exchange for a land cessation to the United States. And this conflict helped promote a change in U.S. policy regarding Native people. Something else that was a crime against Indigenous people uh, or an indigenous injustice. God, there's so many cards floating around. Um, in John Quincy Adams' State of the Union address, outgoing President John Quincy Adams announced that the civilization policy towards Indians had been a failure and that Indian removal was the policy of the future. And we know what that meant, Indian removal, forcing them again off of their land, even we, though we had just forced them off their land and leading to more deaths, more massacres. Let's see. Uh, I believe this may be under ineptitude, but the Tariff of Abominations, or the Tariff of 1828. This was also an abuse of power, because it was a tariff, um, many of the increasing tariffs, uh, that was designed to protect northern industry. It was unfair to the south. The tariff artificially increased prices of both the finished northern goods, so the South had to pay more for the northern goods as well as foreign goods. They, they just couldn't catch a break. And remember, the South was providing a lot of the raw materials, which the North would then take and make into products. We're trying to buy American, but then they would increase the price of the taxes for said products. So it was, uh, again, unfair to virtually half the country at that time. And those are... Some of the many uh, crimes or atrocities that were under John Quincy Adams. I yield back. <laughs> you make a convincing case, counselor. Well, man, it's been a bumpy start. All right, we got some assholes in there, but uh, <laughs> it's gonna all right, all right. It's the seventh president. I'm sure we got it figured out now. So let's see if we can just dig up. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he like offended somebody. Maybe he sent an angry tweet or something. I don't know. We're gonna get this guy. <laughs> It brings us to the seventh president. This is Andrew Jackson. Sounds like a good guy. 1829. For his first term, John C. Calhoun was his vice president. Apparently, he did a great job because he was elected again for a second term in which man Martin Van Buren was his second vice president. Well, I'm going to charge him first with indigenous rights violations. Jackson in 1794. Jackson started off as a lawyer dealing in claims reserved by treaty for the Cherokee and Chickasaw, though the claims were in Indian territory. They mostly involved the Land Grab Act of 1783. So in other words, this Land Grab Act kind of opened up like anybody that just wanted to go and grab some land, whether it was theirs or not, and it led to a lot of disputes. Jackson was one of the lawyers that went on land that was not American soil. It was still under treaty, the Cherokee's soil, the Chickasaw's soil. And he would try to find ways to make a claim for the settlers. 
1814, during Jackson's fights as an army leader with the Red Sticks, who were fighting the United States, they were led by Tecumseh, who was a remarkable military leader. Tecumseh was uniting the tribes. They'd had enough. They, they saw the writing on the wall. The treaties were not being honored. The people kept getting like addicted to trade. The people were um, getting pushed off their land. The treaties were not trustworthy consistently. So Tecumseh was looking around and said, let's put aside our tribal disputes. When it was just us out here, that worked. You know, it's fine to have tribal disputes. We actually like, it's a good way to like test ourselves, lead a raid on the other t- the, the other tribe. Sometimes they lead a raid on us. It worked, but there's something new happening here. And if we don't band together and stop it, we're going to be crushed. Let's put all that aside and let's fight our common enemy. He encouraged um, all the people of the tribes, reject trade with the white people. This is something that Gandhi said later against the British. Don't buy anything from the Brits. If all you can make is your own homespun clothes, wear it with pride. Tecumseh said the same thing, especially the whiskey. The whiskey they're poisoning our minds with. You know, we we act like crazy people and then they accuse us of savagery because the very whiskey they're selling us reject it. Mm. So Jackson's called in. He's fighting with the red sticks, Tecumseh's warriors. Um, Jackson imposed the Treaty of Fort Jackson with President Madison's approval. It required the Muscogees, also known as the Creeks, including those who hadn't joined the Red Sticks, to surrender 23 million acres of land to the United States. He accused the Spanish of arming the Red Sticks and violating the terms of neutrality by allowing British soldiers in Florida, ignoring that it was Jackson's threats to invade Florida which caused them to seek British protection. Oh my God. A year later, 1815, Teresa mentioned the uh, Treaty of Ghent. Article 9 of the Treaty of Ghent, which was signed in Europe, stipulated a return of land from the Muscogee, the Creeks, to the original owners. But thanks to Jackson's earlier victory at New Orleans, the U.S. felt that it could ignore the provision and kept the lands that Jackson acquired and never gave that land back. Um, as further evidence of his violation of indigenous rights, Jackson, as president in 1830, he signed the Indian Removal Act. This was the brainchild of Jefferson, now finally put into action by Jackson. He signed it into law, stating that tribes, specifically the five civilized tribes, now this included the Cherokee, among others, um, and the civilized tribes, they did not fight the U.S. government. When people tried to use that strategy of civilization, assimilation, they thought it was their best strategy for survival. They wanted to be with their families, they wanted to be with their people, and they wanted to be on their land. And if they had to adopt a new religion and live in a different way, they decided that was their best strategy for survival, and they tried it. You think they were safe? Nobody was safe from the U.S. avarice. So the five civilized tribes could either move west of the Mississippi or stay and surrender sovereignty. So they were willing to live like us, but they didn't want to be the United States. They still wanted to be Cherokee. They were Cherokee. If they weren't Cherokee, that was their whole identity. Who were they? They weren't willing to surrender that. We will die Cherokee. The Chickasaw agreed to move. They didn't see any point in fighting a war. They couldn't see that they could win. The Choctaw were bribed into moving, and their move in the winter was wrought with misery and suffering. It was the first trail of tears. It was a horrible move where they moved out west, west of the Mississippi. The Seminole refused to move. The Seminole were ever defiant. They were the tribes that just said, nope, you're going to have to kill us. And largely they were gathered in Florida, protecting freed slaves with their guerrilla warfare still. 
The creek remained and had a second creek war because of the white settlers who would not respect the treaties that their leaders were signing. The tribes complained that the men who signed the treaties didn't represent the whole tribe. The same complaint. This is a violation of indigenous rights. In 1832, um, in the case Worcester versus Georgia, Chief Justice John Marshall ruled in favor of Cherokee land rights. The Cherokee fought in the whites' own courts. They didn't go to war with the whites. They said, all right, we're going to have faith in your system. We're, we've been living like you. They even owned slaves. You know, I'm not saying that's a mark in their favor, but that's how far they were willing to go to be the white people. That's how they got to survive. They had plantations. They were us, basically, with red skin. They went to court. They had lawyers. They had a leader, John Ross, who was only one-eighth Cherokee, but he identified with the Cherokee. He was Cherokee. He didn't care about the, the seven-eighths white blood he had in his veins. He would either live or die with his people. They won in court. And it supposedly said that Jackson replied, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. More than 45,000 Indians were relocated during Jackson's administration, though some walked back or migrated to the high Smoky Mountains and hid, which is why we still have Cherokee in the North Carolina mountains. So this is an extreme violation, not only of indigenous rights, but Jackson defied his own country. This is a violation of the process of the country, the president doing whatever the hell he wanted to. This was the guy that was reelected. This was not considered an impeachable offense because they were Indians. Mm. 1832, the same year, was the Black Hawk War. Sauk leader Black Hawk with Meskwakis and Kickapoos tried to resettle tribal land ceded to the U.S. in the disputed Treaty of St. Louis in 1804. So they just decided this treaty, this meant nothing. The whites wouldn't honor it. They, they were cheated out of their land, and they didn't come back to go to war under Black Hawk. They came back to live on this land. And if it led to war, so be it. They were going home. <sighs> Let's see what we have here in my notes. All right. So as a final act under uh, Jackson's presidency in 1838... He initiated the Trail of Tears, which is kind of the second Trail of Tears, but it's the one we're more familiar with, where 4,000 of the 18,000 Cherokee died walking um, to their new home in what became Oklahoma, west of the Mississippi. Now, a lot of people did not agree with this. There's stories of settlers that really felt sorry seeing these pitiful people walking and dying along the way in these shallow graves, and they, they gave them blankets and tried to feed them. This was not just white evil. This was the government. And even the people that opposed it, they didn't see any way to fight the soldiers any more than the Cherokee did. Jackson made 70 treaties with the Choctaw, Creek, Chickasaw, Seminole, Cherokee, Chippewa, Ottawa, and Potawatomi tribes. None of them are honored. My second charge against Jackson is human trafficking. In 1804, Jackson acquired the Hermitage, which was a cotton plantation. He permitted his slaves to be whipped if he deemed it appropriate. He posted ads for escaped slaves. He didn't want to lose any of his property. In the Tennessee Gazette of 1804, he offers $10 extra for every 100 lashes any person will give an escaped slave to the amount of 300. Um, in 1817, Jackson was ordered to prevent Florida from becoming a refuge for runaway slaves after Spain promised freedom for refugees. So this property that was escaping... 
Jackson was tasked to prevent it from getting away from its masters. And I say it because that's the way it was looked at back then. Property. Unless, of course, you're raping a slave, and then I guess a slave gets to call itself a she. Hmm. During his presidency, in 1830... Nope. Getting my notes mixed up. Let's see, where does that take us? 1820. Now Jackson owned 150 slaves. He may have owned as many as 300 slaves throughout his lifetime. Um, as the president, Jackson opposed the abolitionist movement. The people who were trying to say that slavery was wrong, he didn't agree with it. He po opposed it. While he was president in 1831, um, Nat Turner's famous, famous slave rebellion, also in Virginia. A lot of rebellions among the slaves happened in Virginia. It was also called the Southampton Insurrection. Slave rebels killed 65 people. Mobs and militias murdered 120 free and enslaved blacks. These weren't even part of the rebellion. These were just people seeking an outlet in their anger, any black person, free or slaved. After the rebellion, new laws prohibited education, restricted assembly and civil liberties, and white ministers had to be present at any black worship services. Turner was tortured horribly, and his body was horribly mutilated as a disincentive for other slave uprisings. Oh, Nat Turner, by the way, was a preacher who, in his interpretation of the Bible, realized that it didn't just preach about um, obedience to masters. That was what the white people wanted him to preach to the black people when there started to be unrest. He was toted around by his white master to preach this. As he gained literacy, which was considered dangerous, rightly so, among slaves, he realized the Bible also preached a lot of things about people being equal, a lot of good things, a lot of things that did not justify slavery. And that's what he began to preach, unbeknownst to the white people that led to the uprising. This was under Jackson's watch. Again, a sign that Jackson was not doing his job. Um, in 1832, Great Britain abolished slavery, except notably in India. Well, this is getting to be damn right embarrassing. Here we are fighting for our liberty, and now Spain abolished slavery, and now Great Britain, who we got liberty from, they also said slavery is wrong. And America still says, well, you know what's right? Money. Ugh. Let's keep them slaves. This was under J Jackson's watch, while he still um, opposed prohibition. I mean, not prohibition, abolition. Mm. All right. <clears throat> And we have a lot of notes. All right, so that is my case against human trafficking with um, Jackson. I also accuse him of flat-out murder. Um, Jackson was known for his bad temper and threats of violence, and in 1806 there was a reporter um, who was named Charles Dickinson, not the guy that wrote The Christmas Carol. He published an attack on Jackson, which led to a duel. Now, Dickinson was an expert shot, so Jackson's strategy was to let Dixon fire first, hoping his quickness would spoil his aim. Dixon, Dickinson hit him and shot him so close to his heart that the bullet could never be removed. Damn. According to dueling rules, Dickinson had to stand still while Jackson calmly aimed, well, as calmly as having a bullet in you, I suppose, uh. and then murdered him. Now, this was a time when sometimes people went to duel, so you might say, oh, it's a sign of the times. But even at that time, Tennesseans were outraged. They called it a brutal, cold-blooded killing, and they gave Jackson a bad reputation for a while. 
Um, he was known as a violent and vengeful social outcast. So even by Tennessee standards at the time, they thought that was bullshit. He just stood there. That wasn't there was nothing honorable about that. He was a murderer. Um, I charged Jackson with abuse of power. In 1815, after the Battle of New Orleans, Jackson kept New Orleans under martial law after the battle. He would not release his power of martial law. When he was challenged, he ordered the arrest of the Louisiana legis- of a Louisiana legislator who said, there's no reason for you to have martial law. You have no power here. Then he had a federal judge arrested who also said that. And finally, he had a lawyer arrested who said, you have no legal precedent to keep martial law of New Orleans. The civilian authorities became justifiably afraid of Jackson. He was a dictator who had taken over New Orleans, and anybody who opposed him, he dealt with very harshly. He also ordered the execution of six of his own militia who were attempting to leave. They were recognizing, wow, this is not right. You know, like we're here. This is a judge. This is a lawyer. We, we don't have any business here. Screw this. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to support this. So he had him brought back and he shot him, six of them. This news was suppressed. It was not allowed to go to the American people because we want to keep control of the people. We don't want them to know things about our politicians and our military leaders like this. It eventually came out during his presidential campaign in 1828 in a series of, um, what would I say, articles called the Coffin Handbills, which were released by his opponent. <laughs> In 1818, Jackson invaded Florida and crushed the Spanish and Seminole resistance and then captured and executed two British agents, which caused a diplomatic incident with Great Britain. This was an abuse of power. Um, According to their rules of conduct, he had the right to, uh, what would I say, retain the British agents, not to execute them. Hmm. In 1822, Jackson officially nominated as president with a welcome response because many Americans at that point appreciated Jackson's hatred of banks. Already by the seventh president, the American people hated the banks. They were getting screwed and they knew it. They just weren't quite sure who was screwing them. Just like now, so many people are confused. I know I'm getting screwed, but I don't know who, so let's vote for this guy. And... They hated the Electoral College, and Jackson was the, against the Electoral co- College. Already, they knew the Electoral, co- electoral College was bullshit. <laughs> but we still have it. But we still have it. Yay. All five presidential contenders were members of the Democratic-Republican Party. So again, oh, you've got choices, but they're all part of the same party. Jackson vowed to restore honesty in government and scale back excesses. Excesses. Now, the fact that he could run on a platform to restore honesty in government, the seventh president, tells you something about how corrupt the government already was at the beginning. There's no golden age we're going back to. It was born bad. And as far as the financial excesses, he actually did a fairly good job with that. He balanced the budget. He was the first president to balance the budget since George Washington. But we'll see where that goes by the end of his uh, presidential term. Let me see. Abuse of power. Finally, I charged Jackson. Well, let me go back before I move on to that for one more um, point in his charge of indigenous rights violations. <clears throat> in 1836, we have the Second Seminole War. In the southeast United States, the Choctaws and Chickasaws have to turn exclusively to U.S. traders after the U.S. cut off access to the Spanish in Florida. They had become addicted to trading. They didn't. Re- they they 
didn't have the land, the resources to just live completely autonomously anymore. So they were trading with the Spanish because the Americans were corrupt. Now that was cut off. So now they have to trade with the Americans. They were soon trapped in the U.S. trading system, just as Jefferson had intended. They ran up debts, and to pay off their creditors, mm. they had to give up land. Mm. And that was a strategy that was encouraged and formulated first by Jefferson. So finally, ineptitude. Again, a president's job is to serve the people. If he's not serving his people, he is not doing his job. He is inept. And I would say that as president that the fact that this happened in 1829, the Cincinnati riots of, uh, of 1807, well, the Cincinnati riots of 1829. In 1807, there was a black law passed in Cincinnati meant to discourage the black settlement in the city. So in other words, we're the northern states. You're free. You know, you can be a free black guy, but we don't really want you to live here. Not here. So let's make some laws that really discourage you. Um, mobs of 200 to 300, mostly Irish whites, who were themselves oppressed, who couldn't find work. And as so often happens in history, tragically, the poor eat each other alive. Mm -hmm. So the Irish, rather than turning on the rich who are oppressing them, they turn on the blacks, who have they been convinced are their competition and are the reason why they can't get a damn job. Um, the Irish tried to push blacks out of the city. This was under his presidency. Let's see, in 1831, Snowtown Riot in Providence, Rhode Island. The shooting death of a sailor in a poor interracial neighborhood led to a mob destroying many homes, mostly owned by black people. Militia were called in and they killed four white rioters. In 1834, the anti-abolitionist riot in New York City. Abolitionists and blacks were attacked for a week until the mob was stopped by the military. That same year, Canterbury Female Boarding School in Canterbury, Connecticut, Townspeople wouldn't allow a black girl to enroll in an all-girls school. So the leader of the school, a Quaker by the name of Prudence Crandall, decided she would turn it into an all-black girls school to protest. <laughs> you can imagine what a, a shitstorm that stirred up. <laughs> oh my God. Well, that kept going, the courts, blah, 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 until it was eventually vandalized so bad that it had to be closed. A year later, in 1835, we have a bank riot in Baltimore. Now, this is a riot that finally the people got it right, who their enemy is. Baltimore, Maryland. Mobs attacked the homes and property of former bank directors accused of misconduct and fraud, Hell as yeah. well as the federal district courthouse. Rioters destroyed the homes of the city's wealthiest citizens. It was the most violent and destructive civil unrest prior to the Civil War and damaged the reputations of Jackson and Van Buren. So people were starting to think Jackson was full of shit. <laughs> That same year, we have the Snow Riot in Washington, D.C., right on Washington's front, front lawn, basically. Resentful over the competition for jobs, whites attacked free blacks for days, beginning with Beverly Snow's Epicurean Eating House, which is why it's called the Snow's Riot, until Jackson intervened. We have 1835, the Gentleman's Riot in Boston, Massachusetts, the same year the destruction of Noyes Academy in Cannon, New Hampshire. We have from 1835 into 1836 the Toledo War, where a territorial dispute between Michigan and Ohio, where they called both sides called out their militia. Shots were fired into the air, but no violence. In 1836, we have the Cincinnati Riots in Ohio again. In 1837 through 1841, we have the Panic of 1837, another economic depression. This was after he had balanced the, uh, the national debt. Banks were insolvent. National debt, which Jackson had paid off, now increased again. Business failures rose. Cotton prices dropped. And there was dramatic unemployment. 
It lasted four years until 1841. In 1837, we have the Flower Riot in New York City. Crowds of four to 5,000 hungry workers in response to runaway prices largely influenced by Jackson's monetary policies plundered private storerooms filled with sacks of hoarded flour. I love that. Hungry workers, they're like, screw the economy, screw the laws. You guys are hoarding food. You have too much. We're hungry. We're getting it. So that's my case against Jackson. And I feel like I've missed a couple things, but I guess I'm just going to have to call that good enough. My goodness. But I'm sure the next one will be better. <laughs> yeah, they, they always get better. Okay, here's our awkward edit. And uh, since I, we have to edit this anyway, it turns out there are a few things I forgot about Jackson. Um, I'm going to go ahead and add them in now. So a few more points in my charge against um, Jackson regarding... Um, his abuse of power. I would also add that in 1830, in 1824, in reaction to the corrupt bargain between Adams and Clay and the ambitious agenda of President Adams, Jackson's supporters founded the Democratic Party when he ran for president and lost. Adams' followers formed the National Republicans. Um, Clay, the Speaker of the House presiding over elections, saw Jackson as a dangerous demagogue who might topple the republic in favor of his own leadership. See, they already knew about him uh, declaring martial law over New Orleans, so he had a reputation that scared people. Um, in 1828, South Carolina threatened to succeed from the Union. This was before the rest of the South did and anticipated the Civil War by, I don't know, I guess a couple decades, um, over the tariff of abominations, which gave an advantage to northern industry. Jackson threatened military force against South Carolina and threatened to hang people if South Carolina <laughs> succeeded. Well, I consider that an abuse of power. Um, I don't think a president has any right to threaten to hang people to uh, assert their freedom, just as America did from Britain, by the way. Mm. And let's see. And also just kind of a point um, to add to that. The Democratic Party is so proud of Jefferson and Jackson as its founders that to this day, every year it holds fundraising events that it calls Jefferson and Jackson Dinners. These are the two people that are the pillars of the Democratic Party. Um, and I guess that's just what they think is the best they can do. And finally, my last point as in the charge against Jackson for ineptitude. And God willing, I can find it. Here it is. In 1828, um, I would say, you know, we condemn our presidents now for foul language, for just desecrating the office that should be a noble uh, office of the presidency, we say. <laughs> well, it turns out in 1828, there was an extremely dirty campaign. The coffin handbills were released by Jackson's opponent um, that discussed his execution of soldiers. He was also accused of cannibalism, eating the bodies of the Indians he killed. Oh. His mother was called a common prostitute, and his father a mulatto, mixed blood, which was like one of the worst things you could say back then, and his wife, Rachel, a bigamist. Jackson's campaigners claimed that Adams, while serving as minister to Russia, procured young prostitutes for Emperor Alexander I. Here, kitty, kitty. And charged the government for a billiard table in the White House. So Jackson was elected by a landslide, and his wife Rachel died of a heart failure three weeks after Jackson's victory. Aww. Jackson blamed Adams and his supporters and never forgave him. So this name-calling, this uh, 
juvenile, dirty campaigning. This goes way back to the seventh president. It's not something new, you know, just because it's put into a tweet. There's no uh, noble nobility to the office that we're discussing here. So now I'm going to lay my case against Jackson to rest. And so now we can have our outro to this uh, very convoluted episode. Yes, thus concludes the first installment of U.S. Presidents Exposed. And I'm going to read a quote that I felt like uh, was kind of fitting. This was actually in reference... I can't open pages. This was in reference to, I believe, the um, indigenous peoples... Indigenous um, peoples' history of the United States. And I usually read a quote from uh, Dennis of Jerome, Idaho. And it just happens that his quote this time also fits. So he had listened to our podcast on um, indigenous people's history of the U.S. And he says, that's the second reference I'd heard to the colonization of my northern European ancestors by the Roman Empire. I remember my high school history teacher pointing out that during slavery, if you had a truly dangerous job to do, you would hire an Irishman rather than risk your investment in a slave. Indentured servitude was damn close to slavery. Fucking rich people. And he took our advice and looked up the Green Corn Rebellion, and he added, fucking rich people. (laughs) I agree, Dennis. That's why I'm always on board with your uh, comments there. And if you have any comments or if you want to... uh, counter-argue any of the points that we had in this episode or any of that you've heard. If you want to add some information that we've missed, um, any of that, please contact us. The best and easiest way is via our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly.com. There's a contact form on the homepage there. And you can also look us up on Facebook, Escaping Society. Um, It's got the rocking chair on fire. And Gumby, anything else you want to say? Um, Just that we got one more episode that uh, was so screwed up. This was actually a very long episode (laughs) of the first 15 presidents, and it got so messed up that we had to split it up and edit in new intros and outros. So it's going to sound kind of bumpy and weird. So it's going to sound, the next one that comes out is also going to sound bumpy and weird. But after that, uh, maybe it's smooth sailing. We can hope. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.